I'm going to do something a little different this week. I am not going to comment on the novella you're about to hear. I will let it speak for itself. The Village by Robert P. Fitton, Part 1. Ending meant the forced cessation of biological life. But simulation continued forever. Rawlings knew all that when he heard the unnerving news from his endings division. A seasoned village security officer such as Conrad was not prone to outlandish theories. Yet the reports of tampering with medical ending scans involving six village citizens would mean a larger investigation. He sat in the air sweeper's forward section and gazed out over the rugged mountain slopes in what used to be Colorado and was now Sector 15. The sweeper was still 15 minutes from the village. Unlike most of the 17 million village inhabitants, Rawlings enjoyed shutting off the imager inside his brain and experiencing life the old-fashioned way, just using his brain's perception. Today was a productive day. He and his men, along with 12 drogues, had successfully deported and relocated an accumulation of 52 outsiders who had illegally entered the village. People on the outside would always wish entry into the superior village lifestyle. He couldn't blame them for trying, but why not take the legal route and apply in advance for temporary entry? With the proper behavior, full village citizenship would eventually be invested. Judging the motives of illegal entries was not his job. He was an inspector in the village's Denver section. Once he retired, he would choose whether to go to the outside where he had spent his youth or remain inside the village and undergo image-provided realities for the rest of his days. The medical tampering accusation bothered him enough to open a channel to the village. Without actually being inside, he couldn't activate his imager and direct communications to his brain. A two-dimensional image would have to suffice. He summoned Conrad. The block-faced Conrad popped on the screen several seconds later. He was always unshaven and his red overlap coat wrinkled. Rawlings' image fed into Conrad's brain imager, and he smiled, lifting his double chin high above his tight red neck shirt. Harold, you couldn't resist calling me about the tampering, could you? Rawlings raised his wiry eyebrows and smiled. If this were the 20th century, he'd probably be adjusting a long-stemmed pipe, as he thought. He liked pipes and used them in his imaging simulations inside the village. That was the harm of retiring on the outside. Real-life pipe smoking would endanger his health. Why would anyone want to change medical records for those people who wish to terminate their lives? Well, I've been asking myself that ever since I noticed the pattern. I don't think we're readily going to get that answer. Rawlings shook his head and watched the treetops whipping under the sweeper. That wasn't the answer he wanted to hear. He squinted as he thought. Maybe it was a malfunction. Purposefully altering termination medical scans made no sense. Every villager had the choice to end his own life. John, I want those scans in my imager when I get back to the village. Conrad smiled and his lower chin rippled like waves across the waters. For a man who's not going to get involved in this investigation... Maybe it's time I do get involved, John. I'll image you when I'm done. Thanks for your hard work. I know if I stayed around long enough, I'd stumble into some significant case, Harold. Rawlings nodded and ended the transmission. A malfunction could be traced to the mainstream. The mainstream controlled everything, and creating their intelligence was as significant a human achievement as imaging. Every village city had a secure area below the surface for mainstream control. The mainstream coordinated the environment, 
all imaging, the archives, and information. Those who created the early computers would be astounded by the realm of intelligence contained within each mainstream. The likelihood of the mainstream, so sophisticated and highly evolved, making a mistake was impossible. From high above the mountains, the village, a thousand meters high at the apex, assumed the shape of a sleeping creature in the wilderness. Glossy black perforated stripes containing tube transits, walkways, and energy collectors tapered down the sloping beige structrete. Rawlings thought the village resembled the top of a skull embedded in the forest valley. He stood and walked over to the very large window span as the sweeper circled. At night, the village's upper linear buildings along a 15-kilometer apex was the only illumination in the valley. Other sweepers and aircraft waited to land. He headed to the drogue section near his personal cabin. Having lived the first 21 years of his life on the outside, Rawlings marveled how the drogues piloted ships. Drogues served humanity, subordinated within a 4 by 5 inch frame in a generic voice. Drogue, how long is the delay? The voice exited the front speakers. Delay is 15 minutes. Thank you. Drogues appeared alive, but were actually powered by long-range boosters. Complex internal pathways carried pulses quickly, yet the higher abstract-level thinking eluded them. A human-shaped pliable shell was colored to the particular city they served. The Denver drogues were a heightened green. While the village humans hid in planted image mesh under the skull, the drogues' transparent skulls were laced with black transmitting mesh. Fuzzy vermilion eyes glowed when they focused, and green indefinite-edged auditory receptors appeared in place of human ears. For over a hundred years, the villagers accepted drogues as a part of life. Rawlings returned to the sweeper window. Long, clear tube transits extended across the landscape like arms from the village. They glowed at night to the exposures, five kilometers away near the mountains. Exposures were the legal entry point for those outsiders wishing to make a new life in the village. As a young man, Rawlings stood with his application visa scan inside the exposure's smoky glass. He had waited in residence for nine months before being granted a temporary status inside the village. Because he had entered using the correct procedure, he now had no patience with illegals. The woozy, drogue voice broke his concentration. We are landing, Inspector. Good, thank you. Rawlings took his seat. The sweeper had already begun a vertical descent between the Apex's security buildings. He stroked his chin and hoped that John Conrad's medical tampering problem was a mistake or a simple malfunction. He didn't need murder cases. Murder cases meant trials and an instant ending for the guilty. The practice of letting drogues enter a courtroom and placing an ending capsule over the guilty party's body had never sat well with him anyways. Having a man's body reduced to white and brown crystals in 11 seconds was not right. Like all endings, the procedure was not something he could change. Rawlings briefly met with his own men as they left the sweeper. But after a full day's work, he returned to his dwelling. He used the stairs to descend to the 260th level, then waited for the horizontal tube transit. Once on the train, he still refrained from activating his imager, preferring to physically gaze into the deep cavern streets. Each of the 300 levels was inundated with blocks, colored like drogues, according to the city sectors. Inside these blocks, module dwellings and offices existed within a simulated sunlight, filtered down from a fabricated skylight above the cavernous, slowly curving streets. 
modules were connected by linear tube transits, while vertical tubes were staggered every few hundred meters at the stairwells. When he leaned far enough out against the glass, he saw the business district hundreds of meters below. If people wanted to leave the simulated images of their modules, they could experience real life only on the first level departure rooms or in the exposures. The transit slowed at his section, and Rawlings moved into a spacious, well-lit corridor off the main street. His module was exactly 410 steps from the transit. At the arched entry point, he was scanned, and the doors slid open. He stepped into a 40 by 40 white-walled room with side imaging sections. As the doors clamped shut, he activated the imager inside his head. Still obsessed with work, he imaged his own office, scattering it with employees and workstations so he would feel as if he were really working. On his desk screen, he summoned up John Conrad's findings. He enlarged the screen across the wall, and a series of colored body slices filled the wall. They were subtitled, Anthony Greco, age 117, second month, day 13, ending voluntary, fourth month, ninth day. Conrad's accusations were evident. In less than two months, a relatively healthy individual was diagnosed quickly with an advancing genetic breakdown. The pattern continued as he advanced the screen. A woman in her 70s had perfect readings three weeks before her own voluntary ending. This was very unusual. Endings were normally preceded by many months of medical determination. Someone was knocking within his imager. He could hear a gentle beep. Yes. It's John. I've got, uh, it's John. I got additional information. Sure, John. Come in. Conrad, a perplexed look on his face, stood at his desk and held a purple disc. What's on the disc there, Johnny? I've got a live one, Harold. A Walter Embers, 72. Ending is scheduled tomorrow at 6 p.m. Son Neil in Denver section. Two other sons on the outside. Looks like Zephyr Creek. Wife was deceased five years ago. Conrad popped in the disc, stood back, and studied Walter Embers' body scan from two weeks ago. Readouts indicated he was 20 years younger than his biological age, but the second scan showed a body-wide deterioration. Rawlings stepped back and crossed his arms. John, have you talked to the medical advisors? What the hell is going on here? Man just doesn't fall apart, because that's what I see is about to happen to Embers. Agreed, agreed. Uh, to answer your question, I've talked to the diagnostic people. I've got the runaround from them and the mainstream. They both tell me what's happened, and that's it. How does Embers and his family feel about it? Well, that's another problem. I've tried to get through to them. Neil, the son, is not answering my calls nor the messages I left in his imager. Walter Embers has shut off all communication with the outside as he prepares for his ending. Rawlings pushed his fingertips across his eyes. The sweeper ride to the outside had been tiring. More than fatigue, he had a bad feeling about all of this. This isn't right. I keep thinking about murder, John. Me too. Rawlings shut off all body readouts. He had seen too many cases in his career to be stifled. Conrad must have wondered why he had shut down the images, and Rawlings kept him in anticipation. He walked over to his metal desk and pulled out his pipe. As Conrad anxiously awaited, he lit a long wooden match. Do you agree that the medical people, as well as the Embers clan, will not cooperate? Conrad nodded. Okay, you said he had sons on the outside. Contact them two-dimensionally. 
I bet all my fortunes that they don't know about his father's ending. Get them provoked while I try the medical people. I may have to bring this to a higher level, but I don't want to do anything stupid to ruin my record near retirement. Conrad sat on the edge of the desk. He raised his brows and looked up at his friend. Harold, you and I have been doing this a long time, but I've got to tell you I haven't got the slightest idea what's going on here. Rawlings puffed on the pipe. His eyes brightened and he actually enjoyed being baffled. Having a challenge this late in his career was intriguing. Neither do I, John. Neither do I. Around 11 o'clock, Henry Sykes gave Mark Embers word of the village transmission. Mark immediately left his job at the garage and started up the town hill to the transmission tower. He sent Tom Cortland into the forest to tell Frank the village had left a message. As he moved up the half-paved road, he wondered why his father or Neil would call from the inside. The transmission shack was in a clearing overlooking more hills. Because many people had chosen the village life, it became increasingly difficult to offer communications to individual houses. All phone and visual communication had to be directed into the central shack. Now it was the link to the outside world. Henry, a little man with crystal blue eyes and a white beard, walked from the living quarters. He held a large cup of coffee. Good morning, Mark. Mark wiped his greasy hands on a rag. Henry, it has to be 90 out there, and you're drinking a hot cup of coffee? You want some? Hot day, hot liquid. Makes you sweat. Keeps you cool. Mark grinned and looked across the braided rug to the old monitors on the counter. The monitors were linked, as were the old optical tables, up the white block walls through a jagged hole in the ceiling. Have you heard the message? Nope, not yet. He pulled out two painted oak chairs and dragged them across the tiles on the outside rug. Here, sit down, Mark. Take a load off your feet. Mark sat down. It did feel good to sit down after working on car engines all day. I don't like communications from the village, Henry. A word from on high. Henry revealed an element of truth in what he was saying. The village life his father and brother had chosen was at odds with everything he believed. With their images, villages could have everything they desired. Restraint was non-existent. Henry leaned over the counter. He pushed a button in a larger screen filled with snow. Then he reached for one of his recorders, popped out a tape, relabeled in black ink at least ten times. Ah, this is it right here. How do you keep track of everything, Henry? He pointed through his long white hair. I keep it all up here. Long as I get the parts shipments, I can keep it going. That's how I keep rebuilding cars. Henry pushed the tape back inside. Once was a time you could buy all this new, and when it didn't work, you just threw it out. Sounds like the village. Henry pushed the play button, and the snow-filled screen turned blue. Then he looked at Mark. Even when you could buy something, Mark, it was never like the village excess. Well, that's true. Mark turned as the screen filled with bright yellow letters. From the office of Harold Rawlings, Village Security, Denver Sector, 16-07-345. An aging man with a long face stood in front of a busy office. He wore a blue sleeve shirt and had a dark bow tie. Mark figured the office was a simulation, and like most people in the village, this man was really speaking from one of those bare-walled modules. I'm Inspector Harold Rawlings. This message is from Mark and Frank Embers, the Zephyr Creek Settlement. Gentlemen, my 
office is investigating a series of problems involving altered medical records. I do not wish to be the bearer of bad news, but your father has chosen to end his life. Mark leaned back, grasping the chair arms tightly. He could never understand the village practice of voluntarily ending life. Now his own father would soon be dead. Gentlemen, the reason I am transmitting this message to you involves falsified medical records. My office has discovered that other endings recently have been preceded by a radical change in medical status. We have discovered this change in your father's condition. Rawlings walked around his desk and sat on the edge. Mark was even more appalled at the idea of endings than he was about some irregularity. The inspector's dark eyes tightened. I need to talk with your brother and your father. We're having a great difficulty reaching both of them. By delaying this ending, we may, at the very least, be able to check the validity of the medical records. We don't want an unnecessary death here. You can reach me by transmitting to the village and inputting the Denver sector code into your computer if you have one. If not, contact the communications juncture. My imager will respond to 1066-035. Henry laughed. Computer, that's a good one. We haven't had computer parts here in years. We'll have to do it by the phone tones. Thank you for your cooperation in this matter. Mark stared at the screen as it turned to blue. Henry shut off the screen and the recorder. Mark had not seen his father in seven years. Every year, Neil met him at the exposure five kilometers outside the village. To give up real life and accept the simulated imager life was incomprehensible. Can't let my father take his own life. Villagers have that right, said Henry, popping the tape. You want me to save this for Frank? Mark shook his head and stood. He walked over to the open window and swatted away a fly as he gazed down into town. The tall white steeple reminded him of real life meant real values. Nothing was simulated at Zephyr Creek. Everyone struggled to survive, and he couldn't understand how villages voluntarily ended their own lives. Now that philosophy had touched his own family members. I'm not waiting for Frank. See if you can get the village and let me know how much it will cost. Should I call Inspector Rawlings? No, no, not yet. Try my father. I know I can't stop my father's action, but we may delay it enough while we travel to the village. Village is 235 kilometers away, Mark, over dirt roads and uncleared highways. Mark turned from the window and stepped onto the braided rug. I've taken the journey annually, and I know the risks. But what price is to be paid to save my father's life? Everyone waited for Frank's return. Mark's children, knowing nothing of the village or their grandfather's pending suicide, were animated at the kitchen table. Mark hardly looked up from his food during the meal and was consumed by the village's elitist society. Several times he caught his wife's gentle smile across the table. Finally she stood and put her hands on his shoulders. Mark, you of all people, not being a villager, should know there are some things you can't control. Jane, they have no basic respect for life. I'm not a wide-eyed fanatic. I just have to ask why life isn't valued in the village. Oh, they say it is. They have all their options open and imagers enhancing any possibility. And they say outsiders like us in the real world have no respect for human dignity. It's a classic argument, Mark. Where is Frank? He'll be back. Where it didn't get to him till later this afternoon, he'll be back. Frank, a larger man than Mark and stronger from working as a lumberjack in the forest camps, had a sloping ember's forehead and curly brown hair. 
Still covered with tree sawdust on his tight bronzed arms, he angrily burst through the door. I'm going to the village. If I have to go tonight, Mark, I'm going. Mark, already crossing the room, was afraid he might wake the younger children. He let his brother out the front door and they walked across the porch. A faint glow from the sunset silhouetted hills and the stars twinkled across the darkening summer skies. Frank, have you seen the... Henry played back that inspector's tape. This is insane. I know it is. I placed a call to Dad, but I haven't had any response. Why the hell did Neil convince him to go to the village anyway? Mark stroked his beard and looked down. Dad was caught off guard after Mom died. He never should have gone to visit Neil while he was so vulnerable. Now it's led to this. I mean, Frank, what I would give to have Mom back here now, and now this, this ending, ending of uh, whatever the hell it is. Frank put his hand on his brother's shoulder. Listen to me. I won't allow those brain-implanted imager-headed villagers to do this. We still have time. I'm leaving tonight. By tomorrow afternoon, I can arrive at the exposure and meet with Neil. Can't go alone, Frank. There'll be risk. Villagers don't take kindly to outsiders. They'll deport them into the woods and worse. You have a family here. I don't. That's my responsibility. Frank grinned and exhaled. <laughs> That's the crux of it, what you just said. Responsibility. Villagers have no responsibility, only self-indulgence. Mark put his hands in his jeans pocket. Putting himself at risk with a wife and four little kids was not a good idea. And by being available to receive the village transmission, if it came in at all, might delay his father's suicide. He nodded his head, took out his truck keys from his pocket, and handed them to his brother. Take my truck, Frank. It's more durable than your car, and you can handle the rough roads. When you get to the exposure, call the transmission shack. Frank gazed into his brother's eyes for a moment and then hugged his brother. If I can stop it, I'll stop it. He turned and sprinted toward the shed. Mark nudged his way onto the lawn as the truck started. The headlights brightened and Frank backed down the wooded drive to the street. He beeped the horn several times. The red rear lights glowed and the headlights illuminated the road as Frank disappeared up the forested hill. Mark prayed that Frank would be in time to avert a possible tragedy. Henry stood at the door early the next morning. A message had come through during the night indicating Mark's father would be available to receive a transmission any time during the day. Mark had learned that all attempts to contact Neil were futile. He kissed Jane and hurried with Henry on foot back to the transmission hill. Mark's heart pounded as he gazed into the tiny black camera lens atop the old monitor. What would he say to his father? He hadn't seen his father in such a long time. His father was impulsive, less patient with the real-world ways and the cold. Villagers, so used to experiencing their lives within simulated images, had lost the ability to touch out and empathize with others. A red wavy image was formed on the screen. His father was fishing by a mountain stream, knee-deep in his waders and waving with his net. He looked not a day older than when he left for the village all those years ago. Surely not the appearance of a man who was going to die. Yet Mark knew this was all a fabrication, controlled and formulated by the imager within his father's brain. Hey, I see you, Mark. Where's Frank? For a few moments, Mark did not know what to say, and his thoughts were clouded by a young blonde woman dressed in a brown flannel shirt and jeans who was walking up the riverbank. Maybe she was fabricated, too. Dad... I know about your ending. 
His father's facial expression changed. He threw down his net, and the entire screen began to reshape. There was no more river, no blonde, no idyllic country setting. Walter Embers, now gray-haired, his eyes tired and drawn, stood in a green villager suit. Around him were the simple white dwelling walls. How did you find out, Mark? Does Frank know? Frank knows. His father's wrinkled face tightened, and Mark felt the tears in his own eyes. He wished his father had never gone to the village. If only he could hold his father now, instead of seeing an image 235 kilometers away. Neil told you, didn't he? He wanted to go peacefully and let my form continue within an external imager. I didn't want anyone to be hurt by my death. Mark's fist tightened and tears went down his cheek. Dad, that's just it. Death does hurt people. You grieve and you deal with it. You fight against the reality and you move on. I don't want your death to be covered up, to be fixed within some simulation. I'm so sorry, Dad. Mark, sadness is so unnecessary. My images will be here for you. If you lived in the village, you could have me with you always. Only it wouldn't be you, Dad. It would be an imager telling me it was you. It's the same, Mark. Mark shot out of the chair. No! No, it's not the same. Don't you people understand? What's real is real in the real world, and it's not an image. His father didn't appear affected by his pleas. It was useless to continue an argument begun years ago in his father's living room right here in town. Mark leaned toward the camera. Dad, Frank is on his way up there. Why? Because there may be something wrong here. I've talked with some security people in the village. Please check your medical scans. There's a concern that they may not be correct. You may not be terminally ill, Dad. Scans don't lie, Mark. Dad, for God's sakes. They think you might not be terminal. At least check it out, please. You just don't want me to end my biological life. No, I don't. Whatever happened to saving life? Then have them rescan you. His father's imager changed and he reformulated the screen. Walter Embers stood in front of his Zephyr Springs house and Mark saw his own image with him. He turned from the screen. I'm not going to be a party to this fabrication. He turned back from the screen. Henry shook his head and motioned toward what was now a bright white blank screen. Mark reached out slowly and ran his fingertips over the dirty glass fully aware that he would never see his father alive again. Neil watched the drogues vacuum Walter's remaining crystals off the dwelling floor. He immediately instructed the imager in his brain to retrieve his father's form. The imager connected to Walter's dwelling imager. There was a beep and the little green drogues vanished. Then his father was before him, young and vital, perhaps in his thirties. Hello, Neil. How is my ending? Quick. Neil and Walter stood by their favorite mountain stream, the same stream he had imaged Walter for Mark's benefit. Mark did not need to know that Walter had already ended. Good, good. It was nice of you to soothe my biological departure with Mark. Neil was so frightened that Walter was gone forever. Biological endings were so final. Well, I am glad to see you, Walter. If only Frank and Mark could understand how far we've come. Why do they remain in such primitive conditions? 
Neil knew he was only speaking with a mainstream image, as real as any village image. When Walter was biologically alive, Neil saw him more in images than in real form. To view his wide smile again was reassuring. Well, Mark lives on the outside and refuses to align himself with the village, so I guess that means not participating, and not participating means not being able to use the imagers. He never wanted an imager inside his head. Is Frank driving all the way from Zephyr Springs? asked Walter. Yes. I have to make arrangements to meet with him in the exposure. Think of it, Neil. Traveling in some gasoline-powered vehicle when you could be imaged. I don't get it. Neil was upset that Frank would bother him, but he was even more angry with Mark for trying to insinuate that the medical scans were wrong. Not to trust the advancement of science in the village was ludicrous. No wonder Mark had stayed behind. It was a cheap way to prolong Walter's life and cause needless suffering. Before I go, Dad, Razor and I, as you know, have formed a dozen biological templates. We have an appointment to approve or reject many of those templates. Substantive templates? You mean reproductive? Does it matter? No, 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 that's, that, that's good news. That's good news, Neil. Have you chosen your providers? Well, Razor has made those appointments with the village. It's important that the village have providers to nourish any offspring we might have, Walter. When the children reach a proper maturity level, we'll have our images interact with theirs and form a family situation. Throwing out all the bad templates is so stressful. Families are an important aspect of village life. You made the right decision, Neil. Once they actually birth the templates, please let me see my new grandchildren. You'll be the first to know, Walter. I'm glad you're here. Me too. See you soon, Neil. When the simulation ended, the drogues were lined up at the opening to Walter's dwelling. Like any dwelling, it contained 10 or 20 simulation rooms. The drogues probably wanted him to sign off on his own account. Is this ending on your father's account or your account? What difference does it make? None. None. Then put it on my father's with my voice signature. The legal mainstream will, of course, transfer all account debits and assets to the appropriate areas. But the drogues remained in front of the opening. Drogues were such bores. They didn't possess human abstract thinking and were inferior. Sometimes they annoyed him greatly. Neil spoke in a loud voice. Well, go on! Get out of here! Your brother, Your brother is, is not knowledgeable for, for entry and exposure. exposure. Outsiders, Outsiders must, must be granted a security visa. Shall we Shall request, request such a visa? It's really none of your business. Now, come on. Human should handle human matters, Drogue. They scattered as he moved down the transit walkway. Darkness fell over the Denver sector as he stepped into the clear transit tube. Thousands of dwelling modules, linearly embedded within the high pale green street walls, glowed white. Brightened transit tubes followed the levels above the canyon. He feared leaving the village. Outside time was different. He debated whether to interrupt his sleep pattern for Frank's arrival. Maybe he could avoid all the bickering about his father's ending if he prevented his brother's entry. Through the multi-seated transit car window, his imager formed a boring mountain scene. He quickly ordered up an image of the old west coast of the United States. He hadn't decided whether to let Frank or Mark inside the village, nor would he answer their calls. They had refused to participate in the village life, and now they had to suffer the ramifications of that decision. Being a villager, Neil would always have Walter at his beck and call. Progress had its benefits.
The Village by Robert P. Fitton, Part 2. Rawlings was accustomed to late-night calls. Within a few minutes, he and Conrad sat in a 200th-floor security tube transit, zooming to the western end of the village. He was thoroughly disgusted with Neil Embers. Not only did Neil not directly answer his calls, but he had instigated his father's ending. Rechecking the records and determining whether an unnecessary death was preventable looked increasingly difficult. Neil had not helped his brother Frank enter the exposure, prompting Rawlings to contemplate bringing Neil into the detention cells, but he had no charges. The real world's afternoon sun burst through the exterior transit tube as they finished a vertical descent. Real world time now lagged about 12 hours behind village time. At points, both times would overlap. The outsider, Frank Embers, stuck in his mind. Rawlings hoped that Frank Embers could share some insight about his father's illness. Only a few hours before, Conrad had found more records discrepancies. An unsettling pattern had developed across the sector. The transit raced between the hills and toward the exposure five kilometers away. Traveling within an exterior tube was like actually being in the real world. Most villages were uncomfortable losing imaging abilities and experiencing real-world images directly. He had traveled out there too many times to worry about images. Rawlings found Frank Embers quickly inside the spacious, ribbed exposure. A powerful man, Frank had the firm handshake of a worker. He interrupted when Rawlings broke the news of Walter Embers's fate. Frank's tirade, mostly critical of the village, soon turned to sadness. He walked from the transit tube and stared aimlessly across the countryside. Conrad moved ahead of Rawlings. I'll make an attempt to get your brother out here in the meantime, Frank. There are rooms for visitors here in the exposure. Frank turned, his eyes moist, and he ground his teeth. His temple muscles tightened. Neil can't come out here. I'll apply for a temporary visa. This is an outrage, letting a man take his own life. Rawlings motioned for Conrad to call Neil Embers. But then he turned to Frank. We're not going to debate village law, Frank, but I will say that my office is concerned about the medical records irregularities. That is my only concern. Find out who's tampering with people's records. Why would someone want to tamper with records? Especially records with those who killed themselves. Rawlings was taken aback that Frank would refer to endings in such a suicidal way. I guess I'm not so much concerned about why unless the whys help me solve this. For the next ten minutes, he listened to Frank cut apart all aspects of village life. He looked back toward the communication modules near the transport tube as Conrad finally strutted across the exposure. I was able to reach your brother. He took the call once he realized you were here. He will journey to the exposure in four hours. Four hours? Well, it's still the middle of the night inside the village, said Conrad. Rawlings put his hand on Frank's shoulder. We'll get you to your room. There are communication screens inside if you wish to apply for your visa, or if you wish to call back your family in the real world. Frank nodded as Conrad spoke from behind Rawlings. Mr. Ambrose, did your brother refer to your father's medical records? I don't know. My brother Mark talked with Neil. Are you saying if I can put my head inside villagers' ways, someone created false records making people think they were going to die? Rawlings looked at Conrad and then back to Frank Embers. That is exactly right. So my father may have died needlessly. 
Rawlings slowly nodded. I don't think you understand, outsiders, Inspector. We don't march to image your commands like people in the village. I will stay here until I find answers. Neil awakened, cleaned, and groomed. He put on his model suit and had the imager create his total reflection. From the rear, his bushy hair was trimmed and his face smooth. It was incomprehensible that outsiders still cleaned manually and had to waste time to do it. He then walked to the conduit and requested a food bottle. He would create a breakfast image while he waited for the tube transit. Then his imager reminded him of a morning breakfast appointment with his friend and account manager, Zuli. The breakfast would have to take place in the transit. Neil walked through the sliding doors and onto the transit platform. A scarce smattering of people stood along the platform, but like Neil, many people could work within their own schedule from their dwellings. The train whooshed as it approached. This train would bring him to Frank, an outsider, and that was not going to be a pleasant situation. No doubt Frank would blame him for everything. The transit slowed. He walked in and immediately went to the morning brunch room where he and Zuli usually ate breakfast. He quickly consumed his food bottle and allowed his imager to simulate breakfast. Zuli, graying goatee highlighting his round face, appeared at the room entrance. Neil grinned. He liked Zuli's flamboyant personality. Zuli loved to confabulate and believed in conspiracies, but today he looked serious. Zuli, I almost forgot my breakfast. Hey, I'm sorry about your father. Walter's biological life is over. He was terminal. You haven't accessed his image form yet? Neil smiled, but he did not know if he could adjust to Walter's biological death without being able to image his form. Of course, Zuli, of course. Dad and I may be taking a fishing trip soon. I need to spend time with him, if you know what I mean. Zuli nodded as the waiter brought their usual breakfast. Sure, that's what images are for. Nothing for me, nothing for me. I can only spend a few minutes. Where are you headed, Neil? I need to talk to you about something that relates to your account. Actually, I'm on my way to meet my brother Frank at the exposure. He's arrived from the outside. The outside? How can anyone live on the outside nowadays? How can anyone live without simulation? Right, right. Neil pushed the fork into a sausage and chewed it thoroughly. Can't see how my brothers survive on the outside. If you have a scene before you, you're stuck with it. Let them live like Neanderthals, said Zuli. Listen, Neil, as your account reviewer, I went through your father's fortunes. I have to tell you those stupid little drogues may have overcharged him. They're boring creatures. Zuli leaned forward. There's an overcharge of six fortunes on day 11 of month four. There may be more. Not only that, the little bastards put the charge in the automatic cycle. It would have been paid without someone looking into Walter's account, Neil. I don't even think they know how they did this. How dare those drogues take Walter's hard-earned fortunes. He had worked hard during his lifespan within the habitat. And now the drogues had auto-cycled his fortunes? What concerned him more was why. What's it for? That's the odd thing. Your father's ending. A Walter's ending is accounted for. He was terminal and he requested an ending. Very simple. Why the extra charge? I don't know. I've... I haven't found out where it started or why. Find out. Find out. Exactly what I wanted to hear. When it comes to fortunes, I want every penny accounted for. Pennies. Last time I saw a penny was at a museum image in the first month. 
Find out what they're up to, Zuli, and restore what's rightfully supposed to be in Waldo's account. Are you getting together with us tonight? Zuli rose. Where? Oh, we're thinking of the Golden Horseshoe in the 18th hour. Oh, the shoe is always a good time. Sure, I'll be there. Find the irregularity. I don't want them playing games with Walter's fortunes. I'll have my people look into it. Zuli's image vanished, and Neil was alone. He couldn't take the loneliness. He thought about accessing Walter's form, but he didn't have the time. Instead, he finished his breakfast and prepared for the transit to reach vertical descent. He dissolved the restaurant. Once he was in the exposure transit, he realized that all villagers had left the car. Only five drogues watched him from the far end. They were such inferior creatures. He brought up an outside image of the continent's west coast. Waves crashed on rocks below a pastel array of scenic cliffs. He tried to relax, preparing to meet Frank, but Zuli's concerns about Walter's account continued to bother him. Especially unnerving was the thought of those little drogues taking his father's fortunes, and he grew impatient at the transit's slow speed. He ordered his imager to place him back in the sleep cycle. All this activity had made him tired. Better to be unconscious than to be nervous on the transit ride. The ocean scene faded and he fell asleep. Neil gradually awakened when the transit arrived in the exposure. He opened his eyes and the real sunshine burned through the curved clear dome. The village, five kilometers distance from the exposure, filled the wood landscape like a giant humpback camel. One wide shadow transit tunnel curved upward along the outer shell. From the base, the transit tube extended like a fragile lifeline across the landscape to the exposure. The transit stopped, and suddenly he realized images did not function out here. Although he was still environmentally protected, the dome transparency made him edgy, as if he were on the outside. The forest trees and the hillsides were only a few hundred meters from the exposed edge. He wondered why the drogues were still in transit. The doors slid open and he mustered up the courage to walk without the use of his imager into the exposure. He looked around the massive interior but did not see his older brother and decided to walk down toward the two-dimensional screens at the other end. Villagers rarely ventured out here. He strutted across the exposure and his boots tapped on the dark floor. He had the urge to look back. All five drogues had left the red and white transit and had entered the exposure. They watched his movements. These drogues were probably part of village security. But why would they be following him? He neared the flat screens, still uncomfortable being so close to the outside. Without his imager properly processing, he would have to function within the real world. The sunlight hit his eyes through the transparency above. Even the air had odors. Maybe they had let the atmosphere inside. This was not as primitive as the outside, but lacking in a village's sophistication. Neil! Neil! His broad-shouldered brother, in the clothes of an outsider, was at least a hundred meters away. He wore a red and black checkered coat, gloves stuffed in the pockets, and a faded pair of denim fabric pants. His work boots were scuffy and dirty. His brother hugged him, but Neil's arms fell limp. Villagers did not resort to the real-world ways. Frank had probably never experienced an imager simulation and had to resort to all these old customs. Holding Neil's shoulder, he backed up with tears in his dark eyes. Even his teeth were tarnished without the proper medical care. With his beard growth, his brother was a walking anachronism 
with a clear, authoritative voice. Neil, I wish he were still alive. His choice, Frank. Frank squinted. He had a hostile expression across his face. There are village security people who are wanting to talk with you, Neil, and Inspector Rawlings and a Mr. Conrad. I know, they've been trying to call me. Everything I have done is legal, I'm not worried. But he was worried by the drogues as they fanned out behind him. Dad should not have ended his life. Neil turned from the drogues. Endings are painless. You order them and it's instant, no complications. Order it? Where is the sense of decency? Neil knew he was about to be hit with a plethora of outsider questions. He wished his brother would get his calloused outsider hands off his model suit. Why were Frank and his other brother Mark so sentimental? Walter ordered the ending. Frank released his grip and shook his head. Oh, great. Don't let the guy die in peace. It's unbelievable people can be allowed to do that. Allowed? Frank, requesting an ending is a villager right. I would prefer a natural ending. Suppose he had time left. Rawlings said Dad may have had time left, which makes his death even more unnecessary. Oh, you're so damned emotional. Medical scans are 100% accurate. I don't doubt what is scientifically correct. Neil looked around the exposure. He was too close to the outside and could see real trees and shrubs growing less than 50 meters from the exposure. Being reminded of the outside powerlessness made him uneasy, as did the drogues still watching him. Whatever happened to moral judgment? It's all been traded for expediency. And you, Neil, you come out of here so cynical in your, your green uniform. We can change from our mortal suits when we use our images. Outsiders are stuck in their own reality. Frank stared and slowly shook his head. Neil did not want to touch his straggly brown hair. Frank was never even properly groomed by a simple dwelling system. His brother's eyes were moist and emotion guided his words. Where is your grief, Neil? Why would I go to the trouble of grieving? I already talked with Walter this afternoon, which is more than you've done. Only in the village is true compassion to human beings made possible by imagers. Illusions! Frank's outsider fists were clenched. He had trouble speaking because he had allowed himself to become so upset. You have spoken with a simulated image. Correct. Very good, Frank. There's hope for you yet. Our father is dead. Biologically dead, his image lives on. Oh, God, what kind of a place is this? What have we become? Dead is dead. Fabrications don't cut it. Spoken like a true outsider. I am not in grief. I can have Walter any time I want him. You can have anything over time if you want it. That's your damn problem. That's the damn problem of everyone inside this village. Neil shook his head and pointed at the flat screen. Look at this. You'll never know what having an imager can do for your life. Using this flat screen, you can watch a two-dimensional image of me from my dwelling but I can have the imager take your form and simulate it. You are so far in the past, Frank. Don't you understand? Frank swallowed his Adam's apple, moving his beard stubble. He kept shaking his head. Mark, Mark is planning a service at the Zephyr Creek Church, Neil. Would be nice if you attended that service. Neil laughed. Church? 
You've got to be kidding. The only time I go to church is on a historic simulation. Why would I risk going to the outside when I can image it? Risk? You make it sound like you're going to be attacked. I might as well be, rather than losing my imaging capacity. I'm a little nervous right now about not being able to image. You hold your little service. As for me, I'll be on a fishing trip with Walter, enjoying his company and not suffering his biological death. You outsiders, you relish pain. Real existence means learning how to deal with pain, said Frank. You won't get any arguments from me. Man used to cook with fire, then on stoves. Now food is processed. Why go back to fire? I have a romantic attachment to fires. I like them. Then let an imager make one. He laughed and Frank grimaced again. Neil took a few steps back from the exposure edge. Being on the outside was a foolish existence. He once admired his brother's nerve, but now he saw Frank, Mark, and all his family as masochistic throwbacks. The drogues remained near the transit tube as he turned. He would wage a complaint with the security people once they arrived. He looked at Frank and decided to appeal to his sense of family. Razor and I are choosing a template. Frank's face tightened. No doubt he wished templates to be born as babies from a woman's womb. For a few seconds he said nothing, and then he spoke slowly, thinking about what he was saying. A child, born in an artificial womb. Frank, women have rights. You can't expect a woman to bear a child. We all have choices here. Sure, it might interfere with imaging, right? Exactly. Neil, this conversation is going nowhere. We have real births and bring up real children ourselves on the outside. Family means family. Care should be done in a professional, managed system. Besides, my schedule doesn't permit such direct intervention. You see, I choose to work. I have that option, Frank. You don't. You have to work. Frank marched toward the exposure wall. Neil, think it's time I get Inspector Rawlings out here. My child will have the best education and the most interesting experiences and no pain. Frank gazed across the mountains. In an imager mesh implanted in his brain. Of course, that is standard. Standard? Everything is standard. Good God, he probably will have the best education and experiences. But what about love? Sense of family? We will all be imaged together when he gets older. When will you touch him? When will you hold him? Please, you people have removed humanity from your existence. I feel very sorry for you and everybody in this whole damned village. Someday you'll understand. No, someday you'll understand. I'm getting the inspector. It's all right with you. For a moment, Neil was sad as Frank headed for the dwelling corridors, but he was not going to let his brother's real-world attitude ruin his thoughts. As soon as he was within the, as soon as he was within the village again, he would have to create a peaceful image of Frank to soothe the pain. Eliminate those hostile thoughts and remembrances of a man who was lost in the past. It was odd that the drogues were gone at the mention of bringing out Inspector Rawlings. Maybe they were not from security. Neil nervously paced in the sunlight beams along the clear tube as he waited for Rawlings. Without being able to image, he found himself in a near panic state. Ten minutes later, he saw a tall, lanky man with a mustache wearing a green sector security uniform moving with a shorter, stockier man out of the residence corridor.
He seemed to recognize Neil, which meant he was looking into his affairs. Neil, I'm Inspector Harold Rawlings. This is my associate, Conrad. Inspector, I know exactly why you're here, and you can tell my brother before he leaves that your brother has decided to remain in the exposure until we resolve a few issues, said Rawlings. Issues about Walter's ending. Rawlings studied his facial expressions. If only his image were working, he would get out of this. Correct. And I see his point. There are people on the outside who want to know the truth. What is the truth, Neil? Well, the truth is what my imager tells me is true. Conrad had a more gruff voice and moved around like a little bulldog. What do you know about his medical image being altered? His medical image wasn't altered, Mr. Conrad. It changed abruptly. Do you think you should have looked into that before Walter did not question the obvious? He was not going to survive biologically. Rawlings puffed up his cheeks when Neil spoke and faced him. Neil, we think someone changed the records. Oh, that's crazy. No, it's not, said Conrad. I've seen seven documented abrupt medical image changes. We need you to image us a list once you get back inside. All of your father's friends and acquaintances. Any new friends. Anyone who might want to see him biologically dead. Neil was bored and wanted the security of the village. I will comply with the law. And answer my calls, said Rawlings. I understand, but I have trouble with what you're doing with the drogues, Inspector. I resent them following me everywhere I go as if I were some common detention dweller. We don't use rogues to tail people, said Rawlings. They are not from my office, but I do find that interesting. You call me when that happens again. Neil nodded and then listened to Conrad for the next ten minutes. He produced a two-dimensional screen containing Walter's medical image. An almost instant reversal on Walter's morning medical scans was unusual. Walter had trusted the images to provide correct information, and Neil still did. A gracious Rawlings apologized for any inconvenience and left with Conrad a few minutes later. But as they shot away in the transit, Neil questioned Walter's ending. What if they were right and the medical imaging had not proved correct? He began to wonder whether Walter had enemies that might want him dead. Above the speculation was his own guilt. What if he was an accomplice to a tragic mistake? Neil stood at the platform edge, the clear tube open when the next transit arrived. He glanced back to the temporary residences and hurried into the car. All the way back to the village, he fidgeted and felt helpless. When he was able to access his imager, he immediately formed a calmer image of Frank. His imagined brother was supportive and didn't question Walter's ending, nor did the images he formed of Rawlings and Conrad. The imagined inspector told him several times he had nothing to worry about. With all those problems behind, Neil brought Walter to the seat before him. All the way back to his dwelling, they talked about the upcoming fishing trip, and Walter assured him of the legality of his ending. Neil put on the sleep cycle again once he was back in his dwelling. At least the drogues hadn't followed him. His brain was taxed by the excitement, and he still had the commitment with Razor later that day to shop for templates. Neil had not seen Razor outside his imager for six months. She looked pale as she waited on the transit platform near the template storage modules. A few gray strands were never revealed during imaging, and she was heavier. Neil thought about asking her to use her imager, but he didn't want to appear rude. 
By the law, she was his other half, and he didn't want to disrupt their business or personal relationship. Neil, you seem nerv Neil, you seem nervous. Your father's ending? Walter's ending is over and done with. We're here to choose a template, Razor. True. This is exciting. A whole new venture for us, Neil. Neil had the urge to take her arm, but he knew such behavior would be frowned upon as being too real and an imitation of the outsider ways. They walked from the tube and toured a large archway where two drogues stood guard. Inside were millions of templates, the future of the race. They were skiing from below and the doors slid open. From the corner of his eye, as he walked inside, he saw more drogues emerging from the transit tube. Neil quickly moved inside and the doors closed behind. He would call Rawlings if the drogues were still outside when he and Razor left. Several workers in white model suits brought them down a long, glossy corridor. They were met by a diminutive Mr. Cooley, who seated them in an open car. The drive along the colored canister tops and housing templates took about ten minutes. The amphitheater, where they would do their deciding, was located down a long slope. Cooley stopped the car and got out and motioned them toward the white benches on the right. Now, I believe you have 1,972 templates in various stages of development and storage within our facility. Razor checked her imager. That is correct, Mr. Cooley. Cooley produced a wide grin. He was a nice enough person. Razor then imaged him up some projected characteristics that she and Neil had decided upon. Cooley formatted the various templates containing the characteristics and then requested they be brought into the amphitheater. The artificial wounds arrived from side passageways a few minutes later. A total of 12 templates were visible. Cooley pointed with a red light beam to the blue-lit ambiotic fluid. Now, number 11 within the group is eight months evolving. Very close. While number 6 is only two weeks along. I do apologize for that. Once you've looked at the possible projection for these templates, decide upon the earlier developing ones, you'll have to wait. But imaging services can implement something for you to ease your frustration. In the green tinted dome above, a series of genetic projections appeared in the templates, allowing them to view their future child at various stages in life. From newborn to a stooped old man, they watched the long life cycle. He looks like you, said Reza, giggling at number 14. Neil looked closely at the curled-up, evolving life form inside the canister. He could see the veins and little formed hands and feet. This is the first time he had actually seen a template. How long do they wait on the outside? Nine months? What was that, Neil? asked Cooley. Nothing. My brother is at the exposure. He's from the outside. I was wondering how the outside woman actually bear that template. Primitive, primitive, primitive. Very primitive. Who has the time? I like number 14, Neil, and 9. But I don't know if we can afford two right now. We can always perform more extractions and grow them again, replied Cooley. Your choice. You have the choice. Hmm, what do you think, Neil? Neil was confused by what he saw. Before them were 17 templates and a total of 1,972. If not used, they would merely be discarded. Well, let's go with number 14 for now. And Cooley instructed his imager to prepare the contractual agreement. Neil's thoughts centered on Walter's dwelling, and he questioned whether Walter should have looked more closely at the medical images. Nor should he have trusted what he was told. Rawlings and Conrad would insist upon a thorough investigation. 
fear and anxiety threatened to overtake him now in this very special moment of picking a template. His thoughts were broken by the sudden crack of discarding templates. An intense beam would vaporize the tiny life forms inside canisters in a bright yellow burst. Neil was stunned and moved forward. Reza followed him. Neil, what are you doing? Neil looked back at her and at Cooley's confused expression. The next burst shook above him. He couldn't watch the procedure any longer and marched up the amphitheater and into the outside area. From a side chair, he imaged Walter in his dwelling before his ending. Hello, Neil. Walter, I think you should check your medical images. They may not be correct. Oh, don't be silly, Neil. How can an image not be correct? No. Something is wrong. We should recheck this. You may not be dying. Oh, Neil. Biology requires my body will give out sooner or later. But I'll be there for you. You can image me any... It's not the same. No. Sure it is. We're talking about life, Walter. You're just an image. That's all. His face froze in the pain of existence. He stood and tried to recover as they finished the transaction with Cooley. The template was scheduled to be ready sometime toward the end of the week. Neil found it increasingly difficult to cope with what was usually a very happy moment. All the way back in the transit, he fixated his moist eyes on Walter. The best course was the rest cycle back to his dwelling. Razor did not understand his guilt and how his emotions were becoming so drained. She suggested he expand his own medical imaging to prevent such emotions. Supplements placed in his food would make him feel better. Or perhaps he just needed an expanded vacation. Time to revitalize. Village by Robert P. Fitton Part 3 Neil woke several hours later to the slow chime of someone summoning him. Fatigue racked him. He was still troubled, and the bursting of templates gnawed away at him. He didn't even bother to sit up and answered the summons on his back. Frank appeared wearing a yellow model suit and was inside the village. Neil sat up. Frank, what are you doing in a model suit? I've been asked to take over Dad's dwelling. You, the consummate outsider? That makes no sense. Frank smiled as he walked from the transit tube near Walter's dwelling. Maybe I've had the opportunity to experience imaging. The drogues gave me a limited capacity. I just never understood the possibilities, Neil. I can access any image. I was with Dad, and that convinced me. Well, don't be hasty, Frank. You're an outsider. Maybe you should think about this. Frank turned before he left the tube platform. You don't want me to become part of the village? Neil paused, not quite sure if he could answer such a poignant question. Given Walter's biological demise and his own intense shouldering of that responsibility, Neil became increasingly convinced he had made mistakes. He fully imaged himself to the tube platform. Frank, go back to the exposure. Leave. Get in your truck and get away from here. Go back to Zephyr Springs. Go back to Mark and reality. Frank smiled and they both walked from the tube. He opened Walter's dwelling and then faced Neil. They've allowed me to have an imager. I'm a villager now. Why would I want to go back? Frank had no business being here. He was so adamant about outsider ways, and to see him submit so readily to the village imaging was wrong. Neil looked around Walter's dwelling. Now it was Frank's dwelling. His emotions flew. Without explanation, he interrupted his imaging and sat alone in his own dwelling. 
His imager reminded him of the restaurant meeting with Zuli and the rest of his friends. He had the urge to call Rawlings. Something was wrong about Frank becoming a villager so quickly, but he delayed and quickly accessed the combined images of his friends. He dressed in some casual, loose-fitting clothes and stood in the lobby of the Golden Horseshoe. Doubt and contradictory thoughts pulsed through his head. He was directed to his friends across the restaurant. For several hours, they shared laughter and heaps of food. As he waited for Zuli, with all the odd happenings of the past few days, he grew apprehensive. Late in the evening, his large friend appeared at the lobby and headed directly to the table. Zuli exchanged no formalities and seemed preoccupied. Neil, I need to talk with you alone. What's the problem? Zuli took him by the elbow and they moved away from the table. When they reached the lobby, Zuli further advised that they both remove themselves from the imaging. Neil questioned the necessity but finally acceded. He stood alone in his dwelling and unsealed the opening. Zuli, looking down at the tube platform, quickly entered the dwelling. Drogues are following me. They've been following me all day. Neil, something's wrong here. Drogues followed me earlier. Why would Drogues be engaged in surveillance? That's not their job. Exactly. The fact that Zuli used his real form was unnerving. Something was wrong. Neil was anxious and threatened. Zuli, what do you think you're doing? Has to do with your father's ending, Neil. I don't want to take any chances. Chances? Zuli stroked his beard and half closed his eyes. I don't think your father was terminal. Not terminal. I was afraid of that, said Neil. There are additional charges, hidden, of course, on your father's account. They're listed as medical imaging charges. They're all messed up. Walter had lots of charges. Before you go saying wild things like Walter not being terminal, I think they formulated false terminal images. It all clicked in automatically, as if it were done by the mainstream. No ability to abstract. Drogues? Maybe. Maybe the whole imaging system. Why? Why would the system controlling the village want the people dead? I don't have an answer for that, Neil. But I'm saying your father need not have ended his biological life. Neil creased his brow. What Zuli was saying was some kind of mistake. When biological life wound down, it was the choice of every village dweller to end it. Walter not being terminal was just a ludicrous assertion. You're wrong, Zuli. Wrong. So wrong. No, Neil. Images might be deceptive, people might be deceptive, but fortunes don't lie. Either everything adds up or it doesn't. Neil felt as if he were on the outside with no control. I have a sector inspector telling me the same thing. Other endings in the sector have been questionable. He needs this information. Who is he? Can you trust him? Rawlings, Harold Rawlings. Zuli thought for a second. I don't know him, but I would say if you have a connection to security, this inspector... He needs to know about your father's fortune. I know. Neil, this thing could be bigger than you or me. And with those drogues following us, I would be very, very careful. Neil was immediately aware of several drogues following him. He exploited the drones through limited mobility and quickly ascended the stairwell. Drogues must have falsified Walter's medical imaging. Once he was a few levels higher, Neil boarded the transit. No drogues were in sight as he sped along the village canyon. Again, he took the stairwell once he was in the sector security area. As he approached the offices, he saw Rawlings down back. Security scans alerted the inspector and he looked up. Neil moved quickly around the desks and back to the office. Inspector, I need to talk with you. 
I'm glad you're here, Neil. Apparently you had a constructive meeting with Conrad. Neil tilted his head. What meeting? Conrad, met with you this afternoon. I never met with Conrad. Rawlings nodded and his face tightened. Then we have a problem here. He's not telling you the truth. I never met with him. My account reviewer has alerted me to extra charges on Walter's fortunes. Things related to medical imaging. I don't think he was terminal. No, I'm sure he wasn't. And neither were the others. It's the imaging system, Inspector. Something has gone wrong here. I had to outmaneuver drogues who have been following me. I think our lives are in danger. In all his time in the village, he had never felt as if his life was in danger. How could he hide from the drogues for the rest of his life? He would have to go outside if Rawlings was correct. Why were people being tricked into ending their own lives? Rawlings's eyes reflected the uncertainty. The inspector was able to speak when someone contacted his imager. He nodded and then peered out his office. Drogues carried weapons inside and passed the front desk. Rawlings pulled out a rifle from under the counter. Then he grabbed Neil's model uniform and dragged him toward the back wall. The wall spread apart and they ran down a poorly lit stairwell. In all my years, I've never had to use that security door. Neil followed him to a loading elevator and they moved downward in the village. Rawlings was in deep thought as Neil imaged a tranquil scene along a bay cove. But his imaging was interrupted by Rawlings shaking his shoulders. What is it? The inspector had lost his professional demeanor and treated Neil more like a member of the security force. First, stop imaging. Order your imager closed. It's never been closed. They'll track us down if you leave it active. Neil had never thought of closing down his imager. The whole reason of joining the village was to live a life free of the real-world anxieties. I don't know if I can do it. Then I will leave you. I'm not dying because you can't control your imaging. Don't leave me, Inspector, please. Inspector, if you go, I don't know what I'll do. Close it down, Neil. We're nearing the bottom level. Neil shut his eyes. He knew the alternative was death if he did not order the imager closed down. But the temptation to reactivate it persisted. Rawlings looked distrustfully as the car continued past the hundredth floor. It's deactivated. Try summoning me. I already have, son. I already have. Keep it off and we'll survive. Neil watched the blue digits changing as the car headed down, but he was unsure what Rawlings had in mind. Again, he fought the urge to reactivate his imager. You're going outside, aren't you? I am. We both are, Neil. I know every back passageway in this sector. We're going outside and we're not coming back. But why? Why did they change the medical imaging? I don't care why they changed the imaging. It could be a thousand things. Our main concern is escaping to the outside. Neil leaned back against the wall, his head rumbling with the car, and he tried using his own imagination to create a more tranquil scene, but it was difficult. It was such a meager effort when compared with an imager. He could see the pleasant cove where he had used an imager, but it was clouded in the darkness of his own raw thoughts. Seconds later, the car shook, slowed, and rumbled to a stop. Rawlings held up his weapons. He grit his teeth. Drogues never had this capacity. They were inferior, serving us. Something or someone is controlling them. 
Rawlings had to outwit them. He ripped open the forward panel and did something to the processors inside. The car nudged upward and the forward doors opened a few levels above. Neil followed the inspector onto level 62 and they boarded a transit about 50 meters away. They had only traveled a few seconds when the tube was punctured by weapons fire. Neil moved back in the seats and was frightened that the drogues would kill him. He closed his eyes and fought against using his imager. With more weapons fire, he switched on the imager and formed a tranquil forest scene. Birds were chirping and a gentle breeze moved under the towering trees. No, Neil, no! Neil felt Rawlings' hands on his shoulders. He dissolved the scene. The transit moved forward until he couldn't hear the weapons. With his body crunched into a ball, he somehow closed down the imager again. The transit slowed and Rawlings stood. Neil followed him to the platform. How can we escape them, Inspector? They're going to kill us. No, Neil, I will not be outmaneuvered by drones. He led Neil to a side corridor. Neil had never seen these narrow stairwells. Rawlings moved like an agile younger man and held out his weapon. The exertion left Neil exhausted and winded as he descended the stairs. He fell to his knees, but Rawlings pulled him up, chiding him and warning him the drogues would kill him without asking questions. Somehow they reached the tenth level and raced into a corridor leading to an outside window span that Neil did not know existed. Again he fell forward. Rawlings gripped the weapon and scanned both corridors. The outside view filled Neil with a conflicting emotion. By fleeing to the outside, they might be able to live, but imaging would cease and they'd have to survive within the cold, hard reality of existence. Neil, the eastern exposure is some distance away. I don't even know if I can get us out. Neil nodded and stood. His lungs and sides ached. The desire to open his imager diminished. Rawlings nodded and trotted along the span. Distant mountain peaks appeared behind the foothills and wispy clouds swept across the blue sky. Reality was a strange thing. Things unacceptable were unchangeable. Rawlings stopped and Neil ran by him. Hurry! Hurry! Ahead, a contingent of drones fired. The floor chipped apart. Neil scrambled after Rawlings and was sure he would die. Once back in the smaller corridor, they turned, but faced more drogues running toward them. Rawlings raised his weapons but didn't fire. He pulled Neil back, stuck his weapon around the wider outside corridor, and seemed to wait before firing several more times. Now! Reluctantly, Neil followed him into the outer corridor. Rawlings had knocked down most of the first contingent. Instead of continuing down the window corridor, he squeezed inside a narrow expansion crevice constructed to prevent the tremendous weight of the village structure from cracking apart. They moved into the darkness and waited for the drogues to pass. We're going to die. Just keep your imager off. You're doing a good job. We're going to make it to the exposure. Neil held his fingertips against the cold wall. It would be so easy right now to leave reality and form a more soothing scene. His hands shook, but he controlled his thoughts and waited until Rawlings whispered they could go out. The window was bright against his eyes. Rawlings peered outside and then waved Neil forward. One drogue appeared from the side corridor. Rawlings fired a single shot, and the drogue was thrown back across the floor. A burnt smell from malfunctioning wiring inundated the area as they passed. When they reached the elevator, Rawlings peered out the transit tube. 
Neil stood beside him. Thousands of drogues had gathered at base level. How can we make it out of the exposure, Inspector? They're going to kill us. Neil, you said your brother was inside your father's dwelling. Fifty levels above us? We need time. I have an access way to get out. Going to that dwelling will buy us time. They went back in the car and started upward. Rawlings did not sound optimistic. He scanned for the air replenishing conduits or power tubes. It might be possible to get outside. Neil felt beaten and didn't care about surviving, only soothing his pain. He clenched his fists and fought against turning on his imager. Once on the 51st level, they ran along the platform. There were no sign of drogues up here as they passed the glowing digits along the green dwelling modules. When they reached Walter's module, Rawlings took out a small box and punched in the code. But as the forward compartment slid open, the dwelling was filled with a soft white substance. Frank, where is he? Rawlings had panic on his face, but soon squinted his eyes. Now I understand. Frank never came back here. His form was an image. And how many other people are no longer in existence? Are you saying only Frank's image survived? That is exactly what I'm saying. When they upgraded the imaging system, somehow a new directive came into effect. A new directive for humans. A new directive for images. Human beings are not necessary. Frank, is he? I don't know, Neil. I don't know who's alive and who's dead right now. Neil again felt the dwelling filler with his hands. And how many other dwellings have been filled? I'm beginning to wonder if we're the only ones left. Drogue activity increased through the transit tubes below the 260th level. Again, Rawlings brought them to passageway only known to security people. The inspector's plan now was to return to the apex and commandeer one of the sweepers. By traversing the passageways, the rigor had left Neil's body decimated. Rawlings cautioned him against using his imager, but the temptation was almost too great. I can't go on! I can't! Rawlings hovered over him, the rifle by his side. You have to, Neil. You have to force yourself to go on. They killed my brother. Get yourself together, man. Rawlings pulled him up and they started down a corridor. He opened a side panel and looked up a perforated ladder used for maintenance. The inspector stood guard at the base as Neil begrudgingly climbed down. I trusted the village. The imagers. I saw no reason to doubt. Rawlings climbed behind him. It's not your fault, Neil. Everyone trusted the images. You're no different. Why? Why would they eliminate biological life forms when they upgraded the imaging system? They neared the top slighted dome above the tunnel, but Neil felt Rawlings' hand on his boot. That's it. Of course. The upgrading. Neil, don't you see? We simply got in the way and were useless to them. They don't need us to image forms. They can image forms without humans. In fact, humans are a hindrance. A hindrance? Yes. We're slowing the progress of the system we created. Neil had to think about that. He was not used to abstract thinking about anything because everything was done for him by the imagers. He was let down by what they had done. All his dearly held beliefs were under attack now. As he moved his way up the remaining ladder rungs, Rawlings told him to move on to the upper area and stay down. Aware the drogues could return, Neil followed his instructions exactly. 
Rawlings moved on his stomach to the beginning of a long slope back to the ground. Standing, he reached out and pulled Neil to his feet. There was no sign of any drogues out here, nor down the village slope. Rawlings motioned him forward and toward the sweeper hangers at the top. They'll have to kill us, Inspector. Yes, it would appear that way. He stopped before they reached the outside perimeter. Listen, Neil, if we can't get to the sweepers, we'll have to retreat back down the slope. Neil looked fearfully down the steep slope. He could tumble all the way down to a certain death at ground level. Maybe death would be preferable. If only he could image himself out of this situation. Such fear was not part of the village life. They moved to the perimeter very slowly. Rawlings told him the red cylinder above the hangar led to the outside and was used by the maintenance drogues. Ahead were the white-winged sweepers. Neil had only seen in images created by his friends. Different colored drogues from every village sector guarded the sweepers. Rawlings turned to him and spoke in a low voice. Drogues never had weapons. We've let this all slip away. Maybe we can remain in the village, Inspector, in some obscure corner where I can image and... Neil, it's over. Can't you see that? I don't even know if I can get us out of here now. Rawlings said he wanted to board a sweeper despite the drogue presence, but as the minutes passed, too many drogues limited the hiding places. Neil was apprehensive when Rawlings suggested using the maintenance cylinder. They moved along the perimeter and behind the cylinder. Neil's heart beat loudly under his aching chest. His whole body hurt. Unlike the dwelling exercise images, actual rapid movement was tiring. Neil was reluctant to sneak around the cylinder for fear of being seen. Rawlings gripped Neil's hand and yanked him around front. The inspector diverted the security scan and the heavy door opened. Another scan shot down on Neil and both headed inside. How can we make it to the outside, inspector? Rawlings said nothing and led him down a stairway ramp. A few seconds later, he opened a small hatchway in the building's outer shell. It's only going to be a matter of time. My scan will somehow alert them. We have to hurry. The outside breezy air had a unique freshness and a moisture Neil had long forgotten. Rawlings pushed him into the bright sun. Neil shielded his eyes as a mountain vista appeared around him. He stood surrounded by a small fence 50 meters in diameter. They had reached the top of the village. A clear transparency covered the apex, and the long beige slope was cut by the darker maintenance shuttle tube. Neil, bedazzled by the height, collapsed. At 3,000 meters above the earth, he was dumbfounded as to how they would be able to reach the ground without being killed. You'll have to go on without me, Inspector. Get up. Rawlings pushed him up. Let's go, Neil. You wait here and they'll kill you for sure. Neil trudged forward as if he were Rawlings' prisoner. Rawlings climbed the corrugated fence, but Neil hesitated again, closing his eyes briefly. Rawlings looked up from the other side and half-pointed the weapon at Neil. Neil climbed over and set his foot on the clear apex. The slope gradually tapered across the apex. Rawlings seemed relieved once they were on the darker, slotted maintenance support tube. Neil clung onto his arm as they traversed the wide slope but the angle increased as they moved along. Surviving the steep slope to the ground threatened him more than the drogues. The apex was soon out of sight as the village shell was spread under the mountainous horizon. Neil used the tube slots like stairs. Any fear of the outside and not using his imager was surpassed by the angle and height of this prodigious slope. One slip and he would go tumbling over. 
Sweeper vapor trails formed thousands of meters across the afternoon sky. It was impossible to determine why the sweepers were outside the village. Rawlings openly questioned the drogue plans for the human inhabitants away from the village confines. Hope for escape was threatened if the drogues moved outside. When the sweepers returned to the apex, Rawlings and Neil moved under the slotted ducks. A boom rumbled across the valley as they circled high above and vertically descended into the apex. Neil stuck his head out, looked at Rawlings, and started down again. By sunset, they had reached a platform only a few hundred meters from where the slope leveled again. The western exposure, only a few kilometers away, produced a faint glow within the impending darkness. Neil thought about Frank and what they had done to him. His mind now floated within the imager consciousness. As he mourned for his brother, he also grieved for his own shattered beliefs. It was so easy to trust. Trusting had worked until the overhaul. They moved the last few hundred meters along the smoother shell facade away from the ducks. Neil was beset with insecurity as he landed on the soil outside the village. Now it was impossible to activate his imager. Several times he concentrated, but nothing happened. He was totally on his own to face the forest ahead and a new life that was real and not imagined. Mark gazed at the autumn leaves. Neil had just stepped outside and stood in front of the business he had bought a couple of years back. In the 15 years Neil had been back, he had undergone radical changes. Now he was married with a 10-year-old son. But Mark could vividly remember the day long ago when he saw the inspector helping Neil ashore from the river. Both men were scraped and bruised from weeks in the forest. Neil was thinner than his image on the village transmissions. Nights brought wailing as he became cognizant of how he had to live in a world where things happened to him and not for him. Neil's bizarre state reminded Mark of his children when they were young and how he disciplined them so they would not be spoiled. Everyone treated Neil firmly. After months of frustration, he emerged back in town and worked as a laborer at Conley's Mercantile. When Conley retired, Neil bought the business and ran it successfully. Neil had never mentioned the village, and thoughts of imaging seemed to be left back within its confines. Rawlings, late at night in the tavern, would discuss in detail what life was like within the village, but he also speculated on the possibility that human life no longer existed in that Colorado village or in any of the villages around the world. Mark approached the mercantile and called out. His brother's hair was gray, but he was more heavy-set in his white apron than when he had first come back to Zephyr Springs. Mark cupped his hand. Did you get the supplies? Yeah, thanks for letting me use the flat screen. I was able to procure a shipment for next week. Neil's son, Philip, ran across the dusty road ahead of Mary. Neil hoisted the boy into the air and kissed Mary. She smiled as he spoke. Philip is all excited about going with you to pick up those supplies. Mom says I have to check with you. Can we leave tonight, Dad? Mark thought about his own father and how his life had been ended back in the village so long ago. Being a father erased that pain. Neil set down Philip on the boardwalk. Philip, you'll have to wait, son. Oh, I'm ready to go. We will, we will. Neil grinned and ruffled his brown hair. Mary moved inside the mercantile as he looked back toward the street. Rawlings, hunched over with stark white hair but still able to navigate, 
walked over with a few of his friends. How are you feeling, Harold? asked Neil. Ah, oh, not bad for an oldster. I need to talk with you, Neil. You can join us if you want, Mark. Rawlings brought them down the boardwalk. He sat them on one of the benches outside the barber shop. His eyes were still penetrating under his white, bushy brows. Neil, not a good idea to put yourself over the flat screen. You never know where that signal might go. You can speak more plainly than that, Harold. I can. I'm afraid that the drogues or village images may have picked up your transmission for a request for supplies. Oh, Harold, it's been 15 years. What do they care about me anyway? Not a matter of caring. Drogues and images only function. Just like that river out there, Neil. It flows without compassion or caring. When it rises during the wet season, it's not because of any animosity. It just does. Well, I have a new life here, and I've had a new life for a long time. I'm not worried about images and drogues hearing my transmission. Mark, you need to go with your brother. Bring the other men from town with you and leave Philip back here. Better yet, Neil, don't leave Zephyr Springs until you're sure of your own safety. Neil grinned and folded his arms over his checkered shirt. He shook his head. While he agreed to leave Philip back in town, he refused any help. He always tested whether he was truly an outsider who had shed all his village ways. Neil was gone for two weeks, and Mark worried why Neil would be transmitting back to Zephyr Springs. At least he was alive and was probably reassuring everyone he was on his way back to town. Mark climbed the hill and gazed up at the huge, red-and-white transmission tower. He moved toward the weathered clapboard shack ahead. Grover Henderson peeked out from behind the door. Grover's eyes were filled. What happened, Grover? Grover couldn't speak. Mark pushed open the door and stopped on the floorboards. He saw Neil's image on the screen. But it was not the Neil who left Zephyr Springs two weeks ago. He was many years younger and standing next to his brother Frank. My God, Neil. Hey, I just want you to know I've decided to return to the village, Mark. Being on the outside was just too stressful. Mark said nothing as the image prattled onward. Frank's image spoke too. Mark was convinced he was only seeing images and was sure that Neil had been killed. The drogues had installed his image amidst the electronic flow within the system. It was the system working within itself, but unable to reach out. No! No! He retreated across the room and picked up the long-handled axe next to the fireplace wood. Neil kept speaking, but Mark wielded the axe deftly. He swung it through the air and sliced the transmission cables. The screen image wavered and it went to snow as he cut the line. Then he slammed the screen. The implosion sent debris flying across the room. Once outside, he saw Mary and Philip moving up the hill from different directions. Go back! Go back! Mark cut the cables holding the antenna. One by one, they snapped and he scaled the fence. He pushed and pulled until the antenna finally snapped and crashed into the woods. Then he staggered back to Mary and Philip. Philip tried to speak. I have to tell you. Wait, Philip. Mark, you've destroyed our ability to transmit, she said. Where's Neil? Mark gazed into her blue eyes as Rawlings moved up toward them. I, I don't know how to tell you this. What happened, Mark? Why did you destroy the transmission tower? asked Rawlings. We're going to live without it now. It's not necessary. The old inspector looked down for a moment. What happened to Neil? Mark gulped before he spoke. He, Neil is, 
Philip smiled and moved between them. No, Dad is back in town. He let them think he was inside the truck when they blew it up. Behind him, Neil appeared on the road and ran up the hill. His son sprinted out to greet him and jumped into Neil's arms. Mary soon joined them. Mark looked back at the fallen tower as Neil moved closer. He held his brother's shoulders. Neil, you're alive. I am. How? I just saw your image being transmitted from the village. How did you do it? How did you beat them? Neil smiled and Rawlings nodded. Harold understands. The silver-haired Rawlings smiled as Neil continued. I needed to lure them out. When I reached the settlement, I transmitted my plans so they would be sure to find me. You see, that's how you beat them, Mark. Rawlings is right. They can't abstract. That's their weakness. The drogues and the imaging system is void and cold. Maybe we've feared the system, but we shouldn't. We should exploit it. Let them think we've submitted. Let them think they've destroyed us. Let them go on with their game. They are irrelevant.